Dick, you look a little grifty. Feel okay? Yeah. Me? I'm great. I'm great. You look half a milli richer today. <laughs> What's it like to be half a milli richer? Jake, you look like a failed hostage taker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Laugh it up, boys. Laugh it up, boys. Laugh it up, boys. When you see my other projects drop, oh my God. you're going to be crying again, okay? I can't wait. Why don't you take yes for an answer, Jake? Cal? I, I've taken yes for an answer. Welcome to the All In Podcast with three miserable rich bastards <laughs> who pull up the ladder behind them. Do you want to explain <laughs> why it took us a month to produce a new episode, Jake? Cal? Uh, what uh, about the, oh, hold on a second, attorney. Let me give you guys the TLDR. Jake Cal thought the All In Pod was his. And then he realized it wasn't. <laughs> no. If you guys want to go, there we go there. I'm That's totally it. transparent. Right, I requested, it. I requested to own 6% more of the All In podcast. No, no, no. Back up to the summit. Back up to when you wanted to no, kick me off the show. No, back up yeah. before that where we- Oh my God, are we really doing this? Yeah, okay. we're going to do it. We're gonna okay, it. if you want to do it, we do it. We can't talk about this for 45 minutes because what happened it's then- It's so boring. So boring. We planned the so summit. So boring. We planned the summit. Jay Cal doesn't like how I was concerned about the summit and I bitched at him and, you know, I was negative to him. Finished the summit. And Jay Cal wants to kick me off the show. Yes. Brad Gerstner, Bill Gurley would have higher rates. Here comes the bullying. People think it was me and Jay Cal getting into it. It wasn't. It was actually, it started with Freeberg right. and Jay Cal getting into Jay it. Jay Cal wanted me off the show. All right. I'll, I, do I get to explain the series Go of ahead. events or no? Okay. He wanted me off the show. True or false, Jay Cal? I felt. <laughs> that Admit it. if Admit Friedberg, it. if Freeberg wasn't enjoying his time here and was going to constantly complain every week about every detail of why the show is not good, there was always the option for him to maybe do half the shows and have Brad Garson or do half the shows or have Bill Gurley or rotate in. And so if he was going to be miserable all the time and worried about the show, I gave him the option. To have somebody else take his spot. Did you or did you not say that this is your show, you're the leader, and you wanted me off the show? I never said that. Yeah. I, nor would I say that. I don't need you to say that. You said you could summarily replace any of us. Effectively, you acted like we all I worked for that. you. It's no, your I show. Sax, I don't think Tremont's replaceable, just for the record. So <laughs> That's true. He does think that. He does I do not think that. Tremont's replaceable. Freeberg, I do think. I mean, yeah. I could pull up the Brad Gerstner episodes. Yeah. I think they have slightly more views. So, But people love you, so we yeah, keep you. Cal told my mom and my wife that he thought I was replaceable on the show. Guys, I would like to jump in by just summarizing this so that we can move on. So basically what happened on. was we had an agreement that it was 25% each. There was a moment where J. Cal believed that he deserved more. We had to sort through a lot of the underlying issues that caused them to believe that. We got to a good consensus. We now have a signed agreement that governs how the show and other things around the show and offshoots of the show will work. We are 25% equal partners, and now we can move on. So enough for the bitching. Let's go. All good. And I love you all. I love you all, too. I love you all, too. To be clear, my position, I, I do feel like this needs to be out here, was if we're going to make it into a media company... My request was, listen, I think I own, I should have 10% more equity and I'll go to work every day and do the work and you guys can just show up. You guys agreed to that. And then you guys said, you don't want to do it. And I said, okay, fine. So here we are, we're back at square one. So let's just get to work. We Enough. just want to do a pod and we just want to talk. There's not going to be any more summits. There's not going to be any business here. It's just a pod. I have other events I do. I have other pods I do. If I want to get paid, I'll do them over there. And here, it's just a pod that you see every week. So let's get into it. Everybody wants to talk about markets. 
Oh, by the way, if you guys want your intros, that's 1% each. Intros, um, go do okay, it. Okay, good. Those are 1% each. So when you guys are willing to pay me my 1% additional equity, you get the intros. And when you want the All-In Summit 2023, oh that's another one. We're going to get an so invoice each week from JCal now. You're going to get, it's going to be prorated monthly. It's yeah. going to be 0.8% equity per month vested. I just think it's so fascinating that we went through all of this, you know, I don't know, storm and drong or whatever, this, this like you know, a month yeah. of non-taping. And, you know, and this, like, all this turmoil in our relationship, so you could get an extra 1% from us. 2% each, 31%. I, I believe I should, just so you know, I do this for a living. And if I do extra work, I believe I should, uh, and if you want me to be the, the de facto CEO of this, then I should get a little extra. Yeah, we don't want that. And you don't want that, so that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. This is just going to be a project. We do it every week. And then all your griffs, whatever you know, you're spinning out from the production board or whatever copycat app you're making, you can fucking do <laughs> as an as a side grift. Here we go. Oh, do right. the intros. Uh, Let's the get intros. going. Come on. Let's go. I'm Let's not, go. No, there's no in zero intros. No intros. Intros are out. Wait, what about hey, everybody? Hey, everybody. I'll, I'll do a hey, everybody. Hey, everybody on the house. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. On Welcome to us. Is that free me for you? It's free for you. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the All In Podcast. We're back for episode 84 with me, of course, uh, the Sultan of Science, the Prince of Panic Attacks, the Queen of Quinoa himself, David Friedberg. How you doing, buddy? Great to be here. Great to be here. All right. I miss, I miss and you. Can you uh, feel the tension? There's yeah. still a lot of tension. There's still tension. tension there. There's still a little tension there. <laughs> J.K.L. and I will be hanging out tomorrow night. We'll, we'll make it. Have you guys resolved it? I, I'm cool. With, I'm cool with Friedberg. I mean, I bought um, a dinner. I think we're good. He did buy me a wonderful dinner. Oh, my Lord. After the Warriors game. Shout out to the Warriors. Uh, all right. And of course, with us is the Rain Man himself, David Sachs. How you doing, buddy? Good. You ready to go? Don't try and deflect this thing onto me. I was only tangentially involved. <laughs> Says the guy who spent 72 <laughs> oh, I, hours I wrote the on, contract. I wrote a, a contract. very fair contract so that we can move forward. Yeah. And then clear. you proceeded to break it in the first 15 minutes by slandering me and disparaging me. But okay. Oh, whatever. come on. That was ah, good for on. ratings. Good for ratings. Yes. I, I thought your meme was pretty great. He did the meme of the two buttons on the superhero trying that to pick. Was good. And that it was, was like good. Jason. That was good. <laughs> making was jokes, good. Uh, breaking the, uh, the non-disparaging clause. And then, of course, the dictator himself uh, from some undisclosed location in a European city. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Jamathapalihapatia. Welcome back, boys. Episode 84. What's up, boys? All right. Uh, well, since we last convened, let's uh, get it all the, on. Yes, the the All In Summit is finished. All the episodes have been released, uh, including Palmer Lucky yesterday. And here we go. The markets are in complete turmoil. Uh, Spy down twenty one percent year to date. Dow's down seventeen percent year to date. As Sachs has pointed out, that is not representative of what happened to growth stocks at the same time. And uh, the May CPI uh, went up, and it was at eight. Six. We also got the 75 basis point rate hike. Who wants to start here? Chamath, I mean, uh, it's market, so maybe I'll just dump it to you first, and then we'll go around the horn to Sachs and then Friedberg. Well, there's a lot to say, so uh, bear with me for a second. But um, the thing that you have to do before you talk about what is happening now, I think it's probably useful to go back. And you have to really start at the end of the great financial crisis. 
And the reason is there was a bunch of people coming out of the GFC who confused what the U.S. government and some European governments were doing. At the time, there was the risk of a huge financial contagion. And so the U.S. stepped in and the Federal Reserve started to use their balance sheet to buy toxic assets, right? And the ECB did that. And I think Japan did that as well. Anyways, a bunch of banks did it. I mean, a, bu a bunch of governments did it. And then there was this body of pseudoscientists, scientific economists who coined this thing called modern monetary theory, which basically said, hey, you can keep printing money and introducing it into the economy to smooth things out and to actually drive long-term growth. And it turns out that a bunch of government officials fell for it. And if you fast forward to 2022, so 14 years later, you know, governments around the world had printed something to the tune of about 30, 35 odd trillion dollars of money into the economy that should have never been there. So the thing to remember is like, we have not necessarily just been obfuscating true supply demand in the last six or eight months when we've been talking about a recession or inflation. We've been actually doing it since 2008. It's just that it's been building up in the system. So one of the things that we have to realize is that all of that money somehow needs to get destroyed in some way, shape, or form if the true economic equilibrium is meant to be found. What is true supply? What is true demand in the absence of government sloshing money around trying to prop up things that should not be propped up or buying votes or all the grifts that these folks have engaged in in the last you know decade and a half have to get undone. So that's the backdrop. So if you think about taking $30 trillion out of the global economy, you know, you're talking about almost, you know, I think it's 85 trillion is the world GDP. So like, you know, it's, it's, it's almost half of an entire year's worth of global GDP. It's going to take three years, probably, of the slow, meticulous, you know, running off of money, you know, not reintroducing new money. So it seems like we're at the beginning of the beginning of something that's going to be long and drawn out. Now, that's Sack separate from and that's yeah. separate from whether we're in a recession or not. That's just the bear market that we're in. Right. And so you have to look at asset prices today as a microcosm of a much larger trend that has to be about fake money pushing asset prices up. And now taking all that fake money out and finding out what the real price of something is. And I just don't think that takes six months. So for all the people that were, you know, fingers crossed, hoping that this would be the end of it, Fed raises 75, we're done with this, they're going to raise 75 more. I just think that's not how it's probably going to be. It's going to take, you know, 24, 36 months. That may mean the bottom doesn't happen for another 18 months. So I think it's a we're in, we're in for a lot of choppy um, market action. Sachs, three asset bubbles, clearly all, um, you know, being impacted. We had stocks. Looks like that story was pretty violent. Uh, then we had crypto. This last two or three uh, weeks have been absolutely insane in terms of that asset bubble. And now uh, record high inventories for homes, record um sales are now dipping below the average of the last 20 years and um we're seeing uh mortgage origination just absolutely get crushed six percent mortgages just a couple of months ago it was 2.x uh for some folks so when you look at those three asset bubbles do you buy chamats hey we're going to see even more 
deprecation these for another 18 months, possibly? Or do you think we've taken such crazy action? And this has come down so violently that we're now bouncing along the bottom, bouncing along the bottom or 18 months of more pain? Well, the, the stock market, especially growth stocks may have taken the majority of the carnage. But you're right, there are other asset classes. And I think we're going to see the carnage start to rotate into those. Um, so you're right, if you look at residential real estate now, the prices are at the highest they've been relative to median income since something like 2006, 2007, before that sort of great real estate crash that precipitated the Great Recession of 2008. Um, so I think there are going to be more more shoes to drop. I just want to build on Chamas' point about root causes here. Um, Milton Friedman once said that there's nothing quite so permanent as a temporary government program. The temporary government program was quantitative easing. We had this Great Recession of 2008 that could have turned into a depression. They broke the glass in case of emergency. They started this QE, which is basically the government intervening to buy bonds in the market. They had never done that before, and they loaded up their balance sheet. The crazy thing is that program was still continuing until last year. Why? I mean, it was like on cruise control. And so last no, no, year- no, no. It, was, Fed, it, was, it, was, it was continuing until last month, and countries does, well, like yeah. Europe are still doing it. 9% right. inflation in Europe, and they're still buying bonds. Right. So you go back to last year, the Fed bought 54% of the government's debt, despite the fact that the economy was growing at like 5% GDP, that it was bouncing back really strongly from COVID, that you had the stock market at all-time highs. And yet, they were still intervening with this massive QE. And then when we got the, the surprise 5.1% inflation print last summer, they didn't stop QE till the end of Q1. So you're right. They kept basically printing money and it's still going on. And that's created massive distortions in the economy. Now, so the Fed, I would say, is the number one culprit here. And Jay Powell is the number one culprit. But the number two culprit is the Biden administration. And I think Biden did three things very early on in the first few months of his presidency to effectively tank his presidency. Number one, he canceled our energy independence on his first day in office, canceling the Keystone Pipeline and making it much harder to drill. And of course, uh, energy inflation is the number one factor in this sort of overall inflation. Number two, he pushed through that last $2 trillion of stimulus on st straight party lines, the ARP, the American Rescue Plan, after Larry Summers said, economists in his own party said, this is going to create inflation, don't do it. And then the third thing is, and no one really talks about this, is that Biden could have used diplomacy in 2021 to basically find an off-ramp to this Ukraine crisis before it turned into a full-fledged war. And if you listen to the economists, the international uh, development economists like Jeffrey Sachs, he basically says that Biden polled his cabinet and said, listen, should we negotiate and compromise with the Russians? They all said no. And Biden handed down the order, we will not compromise with the Russians. So now we have this massive war in Ukraine that's fueling food and energy inflation. It's going to tank his presidency. And I don't even think there was any debate no, but we're, but we in are his cabinet now, about this. We may not be negotiating against Russia, but we're enabling them to print enormous uh, surpluses. Meaning, I don't know if you guys saw, but there was an article today. Janet Yellen is traveling around, basically convincing folks to uh, not include Russian oil from a bunch of import bans so that these Russian oil tankers can be insured. Why? So that they can sell this oil to places like China and India, etc. The ruble's at a five-year five high. The ruble's at a five-year high. We push for all these sanctions. Europe gets on board and says, we're going to do it and we're going to take the lumps. 
And then we go around Europe and basically say, well, we kind of want to fight this proxy war. But at the same time, we want to try to fix inflation. And we didn't mean to cause this. And it's completely disorganized what's happening. Okay. Right so now. if you had six minutes in the pool for when Sachs would blame Biden for the economy, uh, you win. Well, uh, who, who do you blame? You, well, of course I mean, the I, president we, start, we talked about quantitative easing starting in 2008. So that, that goes over a couple of presidents. And I guess the question I would have for you, Sachs, is how much of the spending, the free willing spending, you know, um, you know, was from the previous administration? Because it does seem like is a bipartisan problem. There's no question about it. But what I just made, want to make sure that we point that out. Yeah, for sure. And, and Republicans only seem to find their principles on spending where there's a Democrat in the White House. I totally get it. And I would like to see more fiscal responsibility, regardless of which party is in power. And I'd like to see the Republicans less be less hypocritical in their principles on this. But look, Perfect. here's the yeah. thing: the economy was bouncing back strongly last year. And Biden still pushed for this last two trillion of spending, and then one point two trillion yep, more on infrastructure. And, and then remember the four trillion of Build Back Better, where Mansion saved them from that. themselves. <laughs> exactly. Would, I mean, what would if what would that have looked like? Uh, Freeberg, you haven't spoken yet. Uh, thoughts on you know this these asset bubbles, I guess, and then the buying of the bonds seemed completely unnecessary for some period of time. If we are acting as the fifty percent plus buyer of bonds. What kind of distortion does that create in the market? Because if the government's competing against other people in the marketplace to buy those bonds, how could they possibly be priced well, correctly? Let's just be very careful about our framing. There's the US Treasury, which yeah. issues bonds and raises capital on behalf of the US government for spending right. programs. Then there's the central bank, the Federal Reserve. And our central bank's job is to, number one, maintain liquidity in the capital markets so that businesses can invest in growing their their products and growing their businesses and the economy grows while not providing too much liquidity that you end up with inflationary effects and inflationary effects means that there's too much money in the market and you see that money find its way into escalating prices on different you know assets and the fed's long-term goal remember is to provide a stated goal of Jerome Powell in particular right now, this changes over time, but generally the intention of the Federal Reserve is to make liquidity, to make cash available to banks who ultimately make it available to businesses in such a way that there's enough cash in the system that the businesses grow and that people have capital to invest in growth while keeping inflation at 2%. So their long-term target is 2% inflation. And it's and also, correct me and, if I'm wrong, and, and making sure that there's enough cash to support economic growth. So remember, last year, you'll remember Stan Druckenmiller was very public about how insane it was that the Federal Reserve was still buying bonds. And so, so there's one way to introduce cash into the system is to make cash available as a loan to banks. And then those, uh, you know, banks use that money to loan to businesses and it makes its way through the economy. Another way is for the Federal Reserve to step in and actually buy bonds freeing up the money that other people would be otherwise using to buy bonds to go and invest in other things. So they're effectively forcing liquidity into the market by taking bonds out of the market. And last summer, or Q2 of last year, Druckenmiller was pounding the table saying, guys, the economic indicators on how quickly the markets are, or how quickly the economy is growing relative to how much inflation there is, indicates that we should stop buying bonds and we should stop injecting liquidity into the markets. This makes no sense. It is nonsensical. And there was no strong point of view from the Fed at the time other than 
There was uncertainty about the, the bounce back of the from the recession from COVID. There was uncertainty about what else was happening in the economy and yada yada. But the, the numbers, the economic indicators were showing very clearly the economy is growing at a robust pace, low unemployment, and inflation is starting to pick up. Holy crap, it's time to cool it off. And the Fed made a judgment call, and their judgment call really kind of was to keep going. And then we end up in this massive runaway inflationary problem where if you keep too much liquidity in the system for too long, you have inflation, even if you have economic growth. And now by pulling the money out of the system super, super fast, we reduce the inflationary effects potentially, but we tank the economy because now all this money coming out of the market means people are spending less and buying less and businesses have less to borrow. Right. The borrowing costs are high. And then that, that's, that's the big vacuum. Okay, hold on. Let me go to Chamath and then Saxon. I just so, want to say one thing. The, the, rate, the rate at which we pull the money out, which has had to be really, really fast over the last few weeks, can cause a recession. And that's the, the, the biggest concern right now is will that actually trigger a massive recession or not that everyone's watching? So Chamath, I guess ac- one of the things we need to clarify here is the actual mandate of the Fed no, I was no. under the understanding that the Fed really was there to make sure of maximum employment and that, you know, low interest loans were available and price stability. These are the, were the stated goals for a long time. Not low interest rates. Or capital, um, capital is available availability for the economy to grow at without, moderate rates. without exceeding inflation of 2%. That's the okay. goal. So maximum employment, price stability was also in yeah. there. Maximum the GDP growth, because remember, we yeah. can't ever pay our debt if our GDP is not growing. Okay. While minimizing, uh, while keeping inflation below 2%. Chamath, whatever point you want to make, feel free to make. But also, I was just wanted to know from you, wh- where did the Fed go wrong with their mandate, if at all here? Because we do have maximum employment well, look, right now, Fed? but we have out of control price stability. Look, here's the thing. You, 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 I think we have to also be sensitive to the fact that the Fed operates on a certain class of data. And that data in the 21st century is pretty pathetic. Um, Nick, you can probably find this, but there was an article, I think it was in the New York Times, that really walked through how CPI is calculated. And it's a bunch of people that work for the government that walk around with iPads, building relationships with local businesses in all these random places all around the country, and asking them to, you know, chit chat for 15 minutes and do these surveys. Now, you would have thought that in 2023 or 2022, what the government would have said to, you know, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, all the payment rails, the banks and Stripe is send me a feed in the following structured way so that I can actually have an absolute precise sense of inflation because inflation really only occurs when a a good or a service trades hands for money, right? And you calculate what did that thing trade at the day before? And what does it trade for today? So you could get an absolute precise sense of it. Instead, we do this random sampling thing and subjective humans etc so if you read this article your takeaway will be oh my god this is very rickety and it drives an enormous hammer that we use to try to manage the economy that's the first thing i think you need to buckle your seatbelt because the next three four five months of cpi will probably be very very bad seven eight nine percent why there are a handful of components that have gotten completely run away Number one, the biggest one is rent. And so rent works on a three-month lag. We're going to reintroduce what the true owner's equivalent rent is into CPI. So we can already forecast that CPI going up. Oil is at 105 bucks a barrel. Russia is basically trying to break the back of Europe by now messing with their nat gas supplies. Um, the German energy minister yesterday said that if that happens, it could be a contagion equivalent to Lehman Brothers with respect to energy. When you play all of these things out, 
what you have is unfortunately rampant runaway costs that really have no mechanism to get back in check in the absence of some real governmental changes our policy on this ukraine russia war you know how we intend to sort of uh work or cooperate or fight with china all of these things have to get solved so in the absence of that prices are going to continue to go up and so what does the fed do how does it throw away what little credibility it has left when there's eight and nine percent inflation prints and saying we think we're done for right now you can't do that so they will overcorrect because there is just going to be so much pressure for them to act all roads i think lead to lower equity prices and i think what david said astutely is <coughs> we've seen the first wave but now it has to touch all these other areas for example we have gotten totally drunk on debt as a country one of the most obvious places where we've been serving alcohol far too late into the night is in the financing of all these private equity leverage buyouts yeah, right leverage these is are dangerous these are sketchy companies that are sort of like you know teetering on insolvency at times where private equity comes in levers up the balance sheet with debt they price it right to the edge of what's legally allowed or what's financeable and then they go do it but that's all assuming the economy continues to grow and so if all of a sudden you have some recessionary forces or prices go up and earnings don't you'll have you know a contagion in the debt markets you could have a contagion in the commodity market so we're dealing with some really um real tough estate. boundary conditions i mean real estate mo most most americans have most of their net worth tied up in real estate yeah. And if we see a 30% correction in real estate, it could be a real problem, particularly with rising interest rates, inability to refinance. Sachs, the dual mandate is, hey, keep inflation 2% and then keep the unemployment rate reasonable. The unemployment rate's amazing with still so many jobs out there, even with these layoffs. In fact, one might argue we made too many jobs available to the point at which people maybe aren't working as much or just, you know, underworking um, uh, and, and not taking advantage of these amazing jobs out there. Where do you see this going, Sachs, now um, that we can't seem to get inflation under control and people are looking at their 401ks, they feel a lot poorer, but is the demand side gone yet? Have, have consumers decided, I'm not going to buy the next house, I'm not going on this vacation, $6 gas makes no sense, $7 gas makes no sense, I'm not going to go on this weekend excursion, I'm staying home. Yeah, I mean, look, consumer confidence just had the biggest drop, I think, in 40 or 50 years. Um, it, we, If you look at, like, right track, wrong track polling for the country, only something like 24% believes that the country is on the right track right now. If you poll people, are we in a recession? And they don't look at, like, you know, the quarter over quarter growth. They just look at what they're feeling. 56% of the country are, says we're already in recession. It's about 70% Republicans, about 50% Democrats. So, the country is already hurting, people already feeling it. And this is, is it gonna... psychological sacks, or are they actually making decisions now to spend less? Well, I think it's both. I mean, both, you start okay. with the real inflation and people feel it, and they also hear about it in the media, and then they start to adjust their their decisions. It's, and this is the problem reflexive. with fixing yeah. yeah, this is the problem with fixing an inflation problem is that it's based on expectations. So once people start to expect inflation, then businesses have to start operating as if there's going to be an inflation rate next year. So they have to start raising prices. And it's actually very hard to put the horse back in the barn. And this is why I think the Fed is probably more likely to overshoot 
on raising rates is because if they really want to stop inflation now, they really have to slam on the brakes. And then that's going to lead to a recession. And if they don't, then we end up with like a chronic sort of stagflationary situation where you get lower growth and inflation persists. So it's a bunch of bad options right now. And I think to the point Freeberg was making earlier, you know, this Ray Dalio piece that he just published as a blog on LinkedIn. He said, look, what you want is a Fed that is alert at the wheel and gently applies the accelerator or the brakes based on what's happening. And instead, what we had is the Fed was asleep at the wheel. They should have started reacting gently to inflation last summer. Instead, they waited nine months and now they're slamming on the brakes. And this is a bunch of bad options. I think we, you know, we are going to have a recession. The way this unravels. Can I I just make one suggestion? I want to put this out there because I sent it on our text and I, anyone that's listening in DC, please think about how we can change the way the Federal Reserve operates. But it doesn't make sense to have humans with subjectivity applying their subjectivity to a set of, as Chamath pointed out, infrequent data that comes in chunks and comes in spurts and only having a mechanism of changing rates by 25% each month, or sorry, 25 basis points once a month. We should have continuous real-time monitoring of economic data and software or AI or some sort of informed set of models should then predict what inflation and economic growth rates will be as that data comes in, react in real time, and on a daily basis, we should be adjusting the overnight rate in a one basis point increment. So we can have the ability to more quickly, more efficiently, and in a higher resolution way. Yeah, smooth it out. A smoother way in a higher resolution way, make these adjustments. It's silly that we're still operating the way we did in a pre-digital age, as it is with a lot of industries and a lot of bureaucracy. But in this case, it's particularly prudent and it's becoming particularly important and relevant as we're seeing right now with the stagflation risk that we're facing where we could have massive inflation and recession at the same time. Because if we had made smaller adjustments every day for a period of time, as these economic data indicated that we should be making them more quickly, we would not be in this problem. And I don't think that having humans and their judgment should necessarily be the way that we drive this thing. Yeah, but listen, we we don't need them making daily adjustments. I don't think the Fed can fine-tune an outcome like that. I just think that they can't be asleep at the wheel for nine months. I mean, we should have AI running this friggin' thing. I mean, what's like... Listen, I I actually don't think... When you you said that, you know, Congress needs to somehow change the, the way the Fed does business, I actually think that the Fed has the correct mandate, which is the dual mandate of considering inflation and unemployment. We shouldn't be basically junking that up by adding a bunch of mandates. And actually, the administration has been trying to add mandates. They basically gave the Fed a mandate around climate change. They gave them a mandate yeah, no, I agree. around don't, equity. Don't change, don't change the mandate. Don't they, change they, the mandate. They have just been just can't change. be multivariable. This will yeah, get too exactly. complex. The tools, the tools should change. Yeah. Right. We really want a focused Fed. And I think the administration has been politicizing the Fed by giving them a bunch of mandates. Totally. That, look, if you want to pursue those policies, do it at HHS. Do it in the Interior Department. Don't basically confuse the Fed and make them pursue climate change or equity or what have you. I mean, that is just bad. That is not their remit, right? Their their remit is controlling inflation. I really think this just comes down to the fact that for nine months, they sat on their hands and ignored the inflation evidence. Remember this word transitory? You know, we heard so much last year about inflation being transitory. How did they know that? You know, why didn't they start rethinking this quantitative easing? The headline from the Wall Street Journal says it all. How the inflation rate is measured, 477 government workers at grocery stores. Yeah. 
Software <laughs> should be taking data from different feeds and software can so learn. I don't, I don't agree with you. And what are the predictors of inflation and what are the predictors of growth and make a recommendation. I don't agree with you that it needs to be real time. In fact, I think it would do more harm than good. But I do think that we can know these things without sampling in such a porous way. And, you know, you can work with private companies to give you the feed of data to, to allow you to do it. And now, you know, we're going to look, we've had a system of overcorrecting and undercorrecting for years. The problem is the stakes right. get higher and higher as the economy grows and becomes more complicated and intertwined. And we have with more leverage. Economies. And we have more leverage. And we have more industries that are leveraged and more asset classes that are leveraged, like housing. Because you, well, I mean, if this you're, is if you're such off an... by even a few points, you could tank we... everything. I also want to tell you guys a quick story. One of the most interesting canaries in the coal mine of all of this was two days ago and what uh, happened to Facebook. And this sort of ties a lot of this stuff together in terms of like economics, inflation, asset prices, equities, tech, we should we, then we can try to talk about non sort of, you know, big tech. But the everybody was saying, Oh, gosh, the market's going to rip on the open, you know, we were closed for Juneteenth. And then on Tuesday, the market, you know, the S&P was up like 250 basis points, 2.5%. And the NASDAQ was also up, you know, call it maybe 300 basis points, r roughly. But Facebook was down like 400 points, right? So it's a big spread. And why is that? And I was like, this makes no sense to me. What is going on with this price action? Everything was up. Apple was up. Google was up. And so I called around and, you know, I was like, why is this happening? And this is the best explanation I got. When you look at who the incremental buyer is in the stock market, it tends to give you a sense of whether prices can go up or will continue to go down. And the poorest informed buyer tends to be retail. And the most informed buyer tends to be these very large institutional hedge funds. Right? So there's a spectrum. And uh, Facebook is an example of one of the of big tech that is poorly owned by retail. So it's mostly owned by smart money. And the case that smart money makes for owning Facebook is that it's got an extremely cheap price to earnings ratio. So you must own it. And what they said was that they, you know, looking at the tea leaves of consumer demand, what they actually re-underwrote was that actually, it's not that the price to earnings was cheap, it's that the E in PE was just wrong. And if they pass through all of these increases in inflation and you know, their earnings expectations into Facebook, it's actually more like fair value at a lower price. That's why they sold it so much on a day where the market was up. Now, why is that important? Well, eventually, you're going to touch all these other stocks as well that are going to go through earnings revisions in this recession. This is where I think Wall Street has done a very poor job on behalf of retail. If you look at the average estimates of earnings, you will be shocked to hear that Wall Street actually has this year being record earnings, next year earnings continuing to go up. How is Wait, that even think, possible? Well, how is I, that? I, how is that? If you're sitting here, how do you see? How do you see earnings continuing to go up into these prints like this when you cannot pass through? You know, 90 percent increases in energy and cogs and whatnot. How does that? Well, I, mean, happen? I think the, the what people would say is maybe they're going to lower their costs, and so with layoffs. And, and lowering salaries and lowering spend on advertising, you know, the earning the E could go up if people start belt tightening. And then we start having companies that are being run 
you know, just more um, you'll have for to the sell bottom fewer, line. You'll, ha you'll have to sell fewer things because there'll be fewer people with jobs to buy things. But we have 10 million job openings. So this is the weird thing about this recession is because we haven't let a lot of people immigrate into the country. But is that, we is have that so many jobs. The, is that what you think the consensus view on Wall Street is that basically a bunch of people get fired. And so that's why earnings continue to go up? Well, they stop hiring for two years in advance, right? Facebook said they were hiring for like 2024. Their hiring plans were looking out two years. So now if they go on a hiring freeze, maybe there's, you know, and that's I'm their number you, one cost. I'll I'm just putting the, out a theory. I'll give you the counterfactual. I think Wall yep. Street's wrong. Okay. And I think that earnings are going to go down this year and will definitely go down in 23. And so I think what probably happens is the entire world of equities needs to get repriced at a lower price. And in that, it's going to put enormous pressure on these cash burning non profitable tech companies. Well, that's for sure. But in the ones that are profitable, Chamath, they're aware of this, Facebook just canceled like two of their prototypes they were working on to save money. So that whole $10 billion into, you know, VR, I think they're trying to make that number look small, smaller. Uh, Sachs, what do you think? Well, I think you're bringing up a really interesting point with this, the 10 million, you know, job openings. And now that that number is coming down really fast as uh, companies close open recs and they basically freeze hiring. So that number is going to come down very, very fast. But one of the major contributors to inflation is that the labor force participation has been very low. Millions of people left the labor force during COVID as a result of the stimulus checks and the freezing of uh, rent and evictions. I mean, look, rent's the number, people's number one expense. If they don't have to pay rent for a couple of years, a lot of them may not work or may not work as much. So we've had this problem where we really need about 2 million people to re-enter the labor force. And if you describe inflation as too much money chasing too few goods, we need to increase production and productive capacity. And when you have millions of people dropping out of the labor force, you've got less goods and services being produced that people want. So just reducing the money supply is not going to get us out of this mess. We also need to improve productive capacity. Just to put a number on that, we, we peaked in the 1999 era at 67% of uh, participation in the labor force. Uh, and then it's been down in the low 60s, 61, 62, and it continues to right. be low. But that is the solution here. We get that 7%, that gap. Um, you, could you can't just fix everything. the demand side because if, if all you do is fix the demand side, what you're doing is you're killing the economy to reduce demand in order to bring it down prices. That's very painful. It's all pain. But what you also have to do is fix the supply side. You have to increase the availability of all the critical inputs into the economy. So labor obviously is one of them, but also critical resources like energy, you know, oil, natural gas, and so on. And that goes back to fixing the supply chain, hopefully getting a resolution of the situation in Ukraine, the war. Um, so if we could fix those things, it's yeah. a way to improve the economy without creating more pain. Freeberg, if the prices of just daily living, of which transportation and housing and healthcare are now the top three, I believe, um, groceries and healthcare, I think, have flip-flopped a couple of times in the last decade in terms of costs. If those things go up, would that make people want to go back to work to pay for those things? Or does it create capitulation where people say, I'm moving in with my cousin, I'm going to lower my balance sheet? What, what is your prediction there? Are more people going to go to work? Or do we still have this, you know, call it 10 million people in the country who just don't want to go to work? I've mentioned this in the past, but I think there's more. There's another kind of interesting outcome of this. We, we've had several months in a row of pretty significant increase in consumer credit. And I think the, the reason is, Things are getting more expensive. 
people generally do not like to reduce their spend on stuff or their living, their lifestyle. Once you get used to a lifestyle like going out to dinner once a week or going to the movies every week and, and you create a budget, you create an ex- a life experience around that, a model around that, it's very hard to say, okay, I got to cut budget now and I got to reduce my life. I would rather say I'm going to keep doing that or at least there's some inertia or some momentum to keep spending on the things that you've been spending on. And the way you do that in a model where you don't have as much income or you have less income and things are getting more expensive is you take on more debt. And so there is a little bit of a nervousness that I have had that people's response generally, um, uh, the consumer response to inflation and uh, to a uh, uh, kind of a, a shifting um, uh, income environment like this is not necessarily to cut as quickly, but take on more debt and keep, um, keep buying. And so I, I am a little nervous about that. But I do think obviously, at some point, everyone has to figure out ways to generate income. There have been a lot of these kind of ancillary markets that are typically the first to go these extra services markets where people, you know, have found other ways to make money side hustles and whatnot, um, that may or may not be as robust as they have been historically. Um, and so people may need to go back for more secure, stable income. And, and these jobs get filled. I, I, look, I mean, as we all know, there's an opportunity. And, and this is the whole concept, I think, behind Build Back Better. It's not super thoughtful in terms of the approach, um, I think, based on my understanding of where that money is supposed to go, because it doesn't create long-term jobs. But there is an opportunity to build um, new manufacturing and new infrastructure jobs in the U.S. right now that could enable a, a healthy transition here. But that legislation needs to be done smart. It, it can't be done with this like, hey, let's build a bunch of bridges and then a bunch of contractors make a bunch of money and no one has any long-term jobs out of it. We've got to find ways to spend money on creating long-term sustainable um, you know, new industry here. Yeah, and job openings, 11.4. It's come down about 6 or 7%. So you know, it, it's going to be trailing, but it's for sure we're seeing it in our industry with the hiring freezes that the, you know, we're going to work through those open jobs. What are the chances that inflation gets under control in the next year? And should the Fed go for like the 1% slam on the brakes? There was some talk about that. Obviously, they went from well, 50 guys, to a, 75. A lot of the, remember, a lot of the elements that we were um, kind of saying, Oh, my gosh, I can't believe the climate prices. So you know, wheat is down, I think 30% lumber is down 50%. Uh, gas prices are coming down. So you know, there, there are some of these um, you know, commodity spikes that we've experienced over the past couple of quarters, uh, particularly recently, that are really that have had a significant part of the fueling effect on the inflationary uh, trickle down into ultimately end products and and whatnot. Uh, And those are coming down. Um, You know, there's a real question of how quickly that flows through the economy and flows through to the price of goods uh, that that consumers ultimately end up paying for. Um, the gas prices right now are the biggest concern, right? Like unless you can get gas prices under control, that always, always has a massive impact on spending, uh, on consumer spending, which drives a recessionary cycle. Um, and so the, if I'm the Biden administration, I'm first and foremost, I, I don't care about the general inflationary indicators as much as I care about getting the price of gas down. That is a super, super critical number to, to fix. Is, is this are these gas prices going to change how Americans look at what car they buy? Because they're going to get worse. The last time we had that, they're going to uh, get worse. People started looking at not buying SUVs. We could have seven dollar gas 
Oh, I said there was a picture actually. Uh, I tweeted in California there was a seven dollar no, and eleven broadly, cents gas. Broadly, broadly, we could have seven dollar yeah. gas all throughout the country. But JCal, the um, you know, remember uh, the average automotive automobile in the U.S. lasts for twelve years. That's how often people change out their cars. So that's eight percent of the fleet being changed per year. Yep. And the interest rates for auto loans have spiked like crazy now with this change in the Fed rates. And as a result, the uh, delinquency on auto loan portfolios has spiked like crazy. Yep. And so, you know, yes, sure, theoretically, people will think about buying an electric car, but most people aren't thinking about that on average for five or six years from now, because that's the average of a 12-year cycle, right? Five, five years from now. Wait till all these Peloton bikes need to get repossessed. Well, all these, uh, actually, the, the, the wait for cars and the overpricing of cars has ended in the last two months. And there are multiple cars now on the market, 25, 30K for a 50 plus mile per gall gallon car. I think this actually, one of the silver linings coming out of this is people might actually stop buying uh, as many SUVs or, you know, I think our average is in the low 20s right now and Europe's is in the high 40s. The problem is like, you know, every other- For miles per gallon. Part of the government acknowledges that you have to really ring fence and protect consumers, right? Like if you look at the securities laws, uh, they're meant to protect them at all costs. Um, and Jason, you've, you know, you've been frustrated by some of the rules that haven't changed. And when they change, they change so slowly. But the reason is because sometimes that you, you want people to make good decisions. And if you, uh, you know, give them a bunch of firepower, they're just going to spend it. And, you know, what we really did was we gave folks just a ton of money. And what did they do? They acted rationally. They spent it. Yep. And now we have to take it all back. Um, and that's, that's, I don't think that's going to be as easy or as simple as people think. What, what percentage of the money supply do you think is in excess right now in the United States? Well, look, I told you this cause I wrote this in my annual letter, but it's, it's stunning that, you know, the reason the stock market went up dollar for dollar was actually tied to the growth in the M2 money supply. The correlation was 0.92. So for every dollar the, that, that the fed printed, the stock market went up by 92 cents. So, you know, it stands to reason that if the Fed is going to take three to five trillion dollars of value out, then we have to re-rate the equity markets by three to five trillion dollars at a minimum. And then you have to re-rate and re-baseline for earnings. And so that's probably another 20 or 30%. Let, let's, it's yeah. let's talk about the end game here. Um, the rates go up, people stop buying homes, people go back to work. And uh, energy prices come back down because people are not buying as much of it spending goes down and people rebalance and that takes a year the job openings could also disappear by the way i mean like you're, they're going you're down four hundred thousand a month is you're, what, you know, yeah you're, the peak, you're, so. you're assuming that all of a sudden like demand is stable but it's not necessarily stable and, it, it and in a demand yeah. and in a demand contraction yes people get fired but then also new job openings change right yes. there's fewer of them they're they're more specific in the way that people salaries go down, people. right? That, that's salaries the next piece. go down. That's the piece I'm waiting for that to me, that would be I don't know if you guys have early warning signs. But the two early warning signs I have in my, you know, uh, uh, job of investing in early stage companies is when people well, um, what's the average salary for low. an engineer? If that hasn't gone down by now, then it's but that, never but that's going a to. lagging indicator, right? Is well, that those? would be to me capitulation salaries go down or people instead of laying people off sacks, they do uh, salary cuts at a company. That is really hard to do, right? That's yeah. That's I don't. Gnarly. I don't think they or do liquidation salary. preferences and deals. Right. I think the way the salaries come down is that startups freeze their hiring plans or they lay people off, and now all of a sudden the war for talent subsides. It's easier to hire people, and so there's no need to keep raising up. Are salaries. you seeing that? Yeah, I think we're seeing the beginning of it. But I got to tell you, I mean, 
I think that startups have not fully embraced or, or realized what, what's happening. I just got back from the KOTU summit over the past yep. couple of days. This was an event that was hosted by KOTU, um, you know, whose founders are um, Philippe and Thomas LaFont. Very smart guys, very smart investors who've been public market sort of hedge fund investors for a long time, but also have a large venture fund to do growth stage investing. Some of the takeaways from that conference, uh, some of the more vivid lines that stuck with me is that one of the speakers said that he said that when it comes to runway for startups, three to four years is the new two years. Because if you just have two years of runway, you're going to need to raise in a year. And in a year from now, we're going to be in the middle of a recession. They're predicting, they're forecasting that capital availability is going to decline about 75%. The amount of money that's venture money that's available to the ecosystem down by three quarters. So if you try to raise in that environment, either you're not going to be able to, or investors are going to you know, have all the leverage. You're not going to get terms that you like. So they were recommending three to four years of runway. So that is not what I think a lot of companies that, that's are planning for. That's just not even possible. Right. The other thing that the other really vivid takeaway is that they did some polling of the startup founders who are in attendance. Okay. And what the numbers basically showed is a, is a contradiction. On the one hand, the founders sort of understood that intellectually that we're headed into a downturn, we're headed to a recession. And so the polling reflected that. On the other hand, if you ask the founders how they're going to react to it, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to cut headcount or are you going to accelerate your business to beat competitors? Everybody said, oh, we're going to out-accelerate our competitors. So everybody thought that they're the exception. In other words, everyone understood we're headed for this massive recession. It's going to be really bad, but we're going to be the one company that doesn't need to cut. We're actually going to grow. We're going to accelerate during the downturn. So there was a real contradiction in how founders are interpreting this advice. And I have to tell you, when I talk to founders in our own portfolio, what I see is, you know, we've now done multiple meetings where we lay out what's happening in the economy and they get it. They understand it. And when we do a board meeting, they're like, okay, we're going to go look at our plan and we're going to reevaluate and we're going to make major cuts. We're going to bring our burn multiple down to, you know, the, where it should be. But then, you know, when you check in with them a couple of months later and you're like, where are you on the plan? I haven't taken the medicine. It's, it, or, or the medicine is like a 10% cut. And I'm like, guys, like 10% is a performance review. Yeah. Like 10% That's what you should you be should, doing every year anyway. Yeah, you get rid of the the bottom, like the C performers, you promote the A's and B's and you get rid of the C. So no one really wants to take the medicine yet. And, um, you know, it's a problem. I mean, Sequoia has this great chart called survival of the quickest that we should put up on the screen. And it shows two lines. One company is the one that takes the medicine right away, brings their burn down to where it should be. And then they're able to grow from there. And they really will out accelerate the competitors. But then there's the company that basically delays and waits. And what happens is by the time they finally get religion to make the cuts, it's too late because even after they make the cuts, they don't have enough runway on the other side. They burn the capital. Yeah. They burn the capital and then they're in a death spiral. So I think, you know, what, what companies need to think about is this is a 75% reduction. Imagine if you did a hundred million dollar round last year, right? If you go try to raise next year in the middle of this recession, that hundred million dollar round might look like a $25 million round. So imagine if you're burning an extra 25 to 50 million more than you should be according to your burn multiple, you're basically burning the next round. Forget about the fact that the last round gave you all this cushion. Think about how much of the next round you're burning. And if you reorient your thinking around that, it could lead to a change in behavior. Anecdotally, I'm seeing people come back from 
rounds where they were expecting 40 or $50 million. In some cases, like with 250K in revenue, 500K in revenue, they were living in a 200, 300 times revenue kind of world. It, it was just insane. And, um, you know, they're now coming back with $10 million caps, $15 million caps on their notes. I was offered $100 million of at a 50% discount. And I said, call me when you get to 65. And that's the best company. That's literally the best company. That's the best. And company. the best founders to bet on, right? Of, of probably most private companies is them. You don't like that valuation, Chamath? What is that valuation? 40 at 50% off? I, I, it, it's less of a judgment on, but it's just more an observation that we're at the beginning of the beginning. And again, we're at the beginning of the beginning. Okay. For all of us that lived through the 2000, this was four years of sheer hell and a grind. Now we have $30 trillion that we have to work through the economy, a recession we have to overcome, a war we need to end, and people all of a sudden assume that two or three rate hikes and five or six months of headlines are enough. And on the margin, maybe they're right. But from my perspective, you know, it's less a judgment on but it's just an observation that we're at the beginning of something that just fundamentally has to take some amount of time to work its way through the system. And so I don't understand why anybody would give up their liquidity in this moment right now. Why would you? Why would I, why would I give up $100 million of cash in my bank account? I would not do that right now. Because the cash, the, caps, the cash gives you so much optionality. It's basically- So much optionality. So you're going to be looking for distress. And this is the thing. So you have a huge amount of capital leaving the ecosystem. Like we know Tiger is basically out. I mean, they were the, basically the default provider of growth stage capital over the last couple of years. So you have a lot of liquidity leaving the system, and then the liquidity that's in the system is waiting for distress. So you're right. And, and there's a quarter, I mean, like we talked about, there's a quarter trillion dollars of quote unquote dry powder. I mean, I know Chamath thinks that people are gonna give that money back, but there's mm -hmm. never they're been not, this not, much. Not there's not, there's not that much, a lot of that's they're deployed. Gonna, they're not gonna give it back. Giving a lot I of that's just, deployed? Yeah, look at that, that Tiger fund. Tiger raised a new $12 billion fund that was announced in March. And TechCrunch, we covered it on the show a month ago. Yeah, TechCrunch had an article saying it was already deployed in six months. So I wasn't on that show. Oh, that was the one where, where, where Jake I'll try to replace you with Brad Gerstner. We should we That's should right. do the show weekly going forward <laughs> instead of monthly. It might be better to keep up with these trends. Okay, but speaking Jake, of you trends, made, Jake, you made a, a good point there. Can we just go back to this for a second? You said that founders were they're still anchored on this world of two to three hundred times AR valuations. Let me just tell you where the new valuation levels are, and this is obviously in flux, but. I'm pretty sure the valuation levels are at 20 to 30 times ARR. That's for a company that's growing 3x year over year. Yes. 3x year over year. That's the best of the best. Yeah. The reason so how you get that's there. That's 10x next year's ARR, yes, basically. Yes, exactly. Right. And, and the way that you get there is that if you look at like the um, the multiples for like the best public SaaS companies that are like, say, a 40% grower, like a Snowflake, they're at 8x. Yeah. So, right. you know, so basically You're giving it's more like, credit for- the Faster higher growth, growth rate. Yeah. Right. But they really have to have that 3x growth. So, you know, if you're a founder, think about the fact that when you try to go raise next year, assuming you're the best of the best, you'll get 20 to 30 times ARR. Now think about your spending, not last round's money, you're spending the next round's money. If you could just reorient your thinking that way, you'd burn a lot less money. Yeah. It, it, the, the, I literally had a deal you know, in the 30 and 40 range and, and angel investors who never early stage angel investors seed funds that did not look at multiples are now asking me because when I send a deal memo to 10,000 people for my syndicate, people hit reply. 
people are hitting reply now and saying, I did the math on this. This is the multiple. This is this. This is the burn multiple. They're actually doing the math. So we all of a sudden have discipline that I have not seen in this investor class in the 10 years I've been doing it. So that is to me, one of the great silver linings here, I think people are going to do uh, a better job with their personal balance sheets, they're going to invest less in speculative stuff, and they're going to invest more in the actual builders who have discipline. So we're going to see this massive swing to discipline. Uh, and we're going to flush out all the people who don't Jacob, have product market think fit. Of, think about all those folks like what's happened in the last six months, it's like, They've been long, unprofitable tech. It's got smoked by 75 to 85%. They've been long crypto. That's gotten smoked by 65%. More, yeah. I mean, if they weren't using a calculator then, they sure as hell should be using a calculator now to figure out a couple No, I mean, people, are, well, you think about it. There's a whole group of investors who have only known the up market. There's a whole group of founders who only know the growth market. If you're under 40 years old, you don't understand what you're about to experience. And here we are. Let's that's a perfect time to segue into crypto. Bitcoin's price is down 71% uh, from the all time high uh, 69k in November of 2021 bottomed out at 17,000 or so on June 18th, Ethereum's price down 78%. And if you look at the craziness since the last all in episode, you know, the, this three AC three arrow capital, they're a crypto hedge fund that was letting people uh, basically loan out their crypto. Uh, they are basically closing a $10 billion um, crypto hedge fund at its peak, they're insolvent, according to the reports, Terra Luna collapsed, the founders and employees at that company are not being allowed to leave South Korea, <laughs> doesn't mean they're guilty, but it's certainly not looking uh, good. And um, there is a whole situation with Solana and a company built on top of it. So lend, which is not Solana, it's an application built on top of it. I talked to Vinny Lingham, our friend earlier this week about it. They had a whale who had um, tried to loan out 100 million and they had to freeze their account because they thought the downward pressure, since there's not many buyers in crypto right now, could collapse Solana. So thoughts on crypto writ large, what is this going to look like, Sachs? Over the I mean, next it's year like the dot-com crash all over again. I yeah. mean, basically, you had an extremely promising technology. I mean, it is a promising technology. Of course, and yeah. it is a future you know, technology platform, but the price action got totally decoupled from the level of progress in the space. And people were not valuing these things based on real customers, real usage and real use cases, but it was became, you know, very speculative. And again, all this was fueled by the excess liquidity that was pumped into the system. So, you know, we've said it before that crypto is like a liquidity sponge. It sucks up when there's a lot of excess liquidity, it sucks up that liquidity. But now that sponge is getting wrung out. And, um, you know, and part of the problem is with interest rates going up, you know, it's one thing when you have negative real interest rates and, 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 and you can't earn a return on your money, then you start to get, you basically people start to push the envelope and invest in more and more speculative things. But as you can get a real return in like, let's say there's like a real risk-free rate. Now there's alternatives for all that cash. And then you've got the problem of leverage as well, which I think over the last few weeks, the crypto space was heavily over levered and a lot of people got margin called and wiped out. That's the contagion that's occurred. And people were levered up five, 10 times their Bitcoin on these roads. Wait till these token sale things get litigated. I mean, the amount, oh God. Of, the amount of grift by so many of these venture firms in running these sketchy deals where they would put in some amount of money. This is my understanding of the scam because it was explained to me. You put in a little bit of equity at some crazy price. 
and then you get these tokens and apparently there's no like you can just sell these tokens day one and so what happens is like you you price the equity but it's meaningless because really what you're getting is the right to get some amount of these tokens the price is crazy you sell it and then you just kind of walk away and apparently you know you do these deals where you just rinse and repeat this thing um well wait to wait the, till that gets exposed i mean that seems the, like the a firm, total the firm that did this the most is andreessen and horowitz uh chris dixon i think was considered like the best investor last year or the year before uh because of all these token returns i i gotta wonder when they go now that this people are losing money that's when people start suing i mean what is it going to look like if they were f what what do you think their marks looked like last year versus right now i mean and all these coins like looking back in the review mirror and saying hey you bought all these coins you flipped some number of coins I mean, th to your point, Chamath, like, what is the litigation path and the the, the shadow economy that was created? What is well, that going to look article, like? Well, there's an article, and I think it was in Bloomberg, um, about folks trying to figure out how to get um, a lawsuit filed against Binance. Mm. And the problem was that they didn't even know what entity to sue. <laughs> um, it's not clear who owns what and, you know, what owns the other and who the ultimate look through ownership structure is. And, um, and it doesn't mean that Binance is guilty of anything, but the article was just, you know, showing how there was a U.S. investor who lost $1.2 million who wanted to file a lawsuit. And they have every right to do that. Um, couldn't even find the corporate entity to, to actually file this lawsuit against. So if that's what's happening in a trillion dollar market, there's, um, I mean, it's gonna it's, be a lot of pain. It's free, it's, yeah. it's a lot of oversight. That's that's that. Free, that Freeberg, missed. what is this going to do to regulation in crypto at this point? Because crypto regulators <laughs> now are gonna or regulators are gonna just be looking at this, going, "Wow, look at all the pain and suffering." And when a local DA gets, you know, five or six of their people complaining they lost money in Terra Luna or whatever it is, this is like the perfect opportunity for them to collect a pelt and get some crypto kid and, you know hold them responsible and get some great headlines. I mean, what do you what do you think happens from this point forward in the crypto land? What you just said. Okay, so, there you have it, folks. Yeah. <laughs> but what about regulation? I guess that's the next piece because all mean, of these I entities look, I mean, the SEC, have taken a the, very... The SEC last July or August published this kind of initial opinion letter. But remember, there's also the CFTC. There's a bunch of regulatory authorities in the United States that have a longer process than governments ex-US that have had a much more kind of stringent point of view that there's a lot of casino like gambling going on with these things. And that's it. There's no functional utility. There's not a it's not. Is it a security if there's no underlying business? If it's not a security, then it's just a bet on something. If it's a bet on something, it's gambling. It's, you know, obvious that if it's a security, it has to be governed by the SEC. If it's a future or commodity, it's the CFTC. And the problem is we need Congress to pass some legislative framework that puts the puck in one side of the of the arena a rink or the other. Yeah. And, well, otherwise, and also otherwise all this gray is going to exist for a long time. And people, you know, if 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 governments really hate it when retail investors lose money, well watch out because they just had two trillion dollars of money. In, in the come. US we have a lot of other regulators that can prosecute cases like the DFS in New York. Uh, this is the, the Department of Financial Services. They are a pretty litigious prosecutorial group. I mean, they go after scams and uh, people preying on consumers and retail investors in a very aggressive way, uh, often outside of the purview of the SEC. They often coordinate with the DOJ or the SEC in, in evaluating enforcement um, decisions, but they, they, they will prosecute. 
And, um, and I think that there's a, um, you know, as you said, uh, a lot of opportunity when people have been grifted out of their money uh, for politically motivated and, you know, people that generally have kind of the right point of view that are in a position to prosecute to go after uh, the offenders. So you're right, there will be there will be a lot of action on this over the next couple of years. And then Chamath is right, the way it gets resolved is a congressional act. But by the way, I'll just point out, in the year 2000, Congress passed what was called the Commodity Futures Modernization Act. And that CFMA was really meant to kind of quote, bring commodities and futures into the digital age. And they started working on it in 1996. It took four years to get it done. Within four years, it was already out of date. And a lot of what was going on with respect to how exchanges operate and the types of uh, contracts that are being created, it was already missed. So, you know, the problem we have here is that by legislating the state of the market today, um, without creating enough flexibility in how enforcement action can be pursued and how things can be interpreted in the future, you could end up in a similar situation where people just find end runarounds and the whole thing repeats itself in the next few years. Because guess what? People will always want to gamble and grifters will always want to grift. And so there will always it's be a way to yet. try and scam people out of their money. Yeah. And that's just... Hey, oh, hey, <laughs> by the way, Sorry. are you, you Cal is always going to want a J Cal. So what you're saying? Let, oh, you get out of here with your calling. Hey, everybody download call in. You can get the after gym podcast. Before we pivot, um, if you want a perfect example of this, and this is just a lesson to founders out there. If you feel like you're in a gray area, you probably are. Um, people were like, oh, NFTs, you know, they're just trading cards, yada, yada. And it's not a big deal that somebody at OpenSea decided to front run the market. Oh, they just bought a trading card ahead of everybody else. Who cares? Well, you know who cares? <laughs> it turns out the Southern District of New York cares, and they are a pretty serious group of people. Former employee of NFT Marketplace, uh, OpenSea was charged in the first several digital asset insider trading scheme. So just because insider trading didn't exist as a concept for NFTs before, well, Congratulations. It doesn't, it doesn't exist in crypto. I mean, if they want to really find uh, the honeypots here, I mean, it's the worst kept secret in crypto how much insider trading is going on amongst the organizations that run the exchanges and their side pockets that they use to, to manage liquidity. I mean, this is the it's the biggest thing that's been happening in crypto. If you're wondering why people were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a board ape or whatever, like, there might have been some shenanigans going on here. And well, I mean, no, but uh, Jason, it's not it's not illegal. This is my understanding, though, it's not illegal to front run crypto trade. So most of these organizations that that run an exchange, right, compete for order flow, and they're able to just look at that order flow, and then they front run the trade, and they're on the other side of that. So they're always making money. And so they were making 10s of billions of dollars. All these exchanges were. Yeah. And then I, I guess the question becomes Sachs, you know, in terms of since you're an attorney, like how you interpret this stuff, it, it, there, there may not be a law on the books about front running NFTs, but there are laws on the books about fraud and NFT and conspiracy to, you know, um, grift people out of their money. So this is all going to come crashing down and the discovery is okay. going the to be next If level. the Southern District of New York actually subpoenaed any of these exchanges, all hell would break loose. Oh, no, they are. You can be sure that's in process. If they go after one NFT flipper, no, no, they no, 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 forget NFTs. I'm saying coins, crypto. Like, that's course. the huge market. And they will, they're turning over these cards because you know how they like to work. They like to flip their way up to the top person. Um, but we're not talking about January 6th here. We're talking about gas in the Ukraine next. Hey, ho. Hey, ho. Uh, that's a little reference for y'all. Um, 
Listen now. So, now that we're now that we're an hour and ten in, and we've we've kind of like broken the ice, and we're we're yes, friends. Again. I feel good. I feel you like wanna, we're, you we're redo, playing as a team again. You you want to redo our intros so you're not being such a bitch? <laughs> oh, I don't. I don't care. I don't no, care. I, I don't can we, we can. just move I forward? I think we all understand. I thought I you like wrote to an be intro. Recognized. You said you said that you were workshopping an intro. So do you want to do your intros at the end of this or not? I'm not doing the intros. No, I'm gonna strike on intros. No, I'm, were, I didn't. They were, they were Here's the thing. What it was. I they wanted to. The intros. He needs an extra point. He needs an extra no, point. I, no, it's not intros. about the point. That was a joke. I, I wanted to do <laughs> intros. I didn't know coming into this how, how sensitive go? people would be. And then Sax is like, I need to have in the contract a non-disparaging NDA. And no, I'm scared about the things I said. So Spike content no, needs to be a bit. I took that out. I you were the out. Spike content guy. You're the most concerned oh, about Spike well, yeah, content. No, no, no. We, no, we have an agreement around is that. A good, is a good rule. Non-disparagement. He didn't want to have in there. I oh, he didn't he, want none. He, he wants to have free reign to disparage you day and night. I mean, he's to ready be to honest. Go. I took it out because I thought you would be more sensitive about b accusing others of disparaging you. <laughs> I, my, this whole show is you disparaging do me. Do you sacks. have an intro or not? For the I don't years. have intros prepared. No, I'll do intros next episode. I promise everybody. I wanted to take the temperature of my besties. I don't know if people are sensitive right now. You want me to make a joke about Brad Gerstner? Look, in we the got real shit to talk about. Can we talk exactly. about Ukraine and World War yes. Three? It's not Sorry, all about our narcissistic nonsense as four ahead, David, over teenage boys running amok. Go ahead, well, so, so Something happened in the last week that I think is pretty disconcerting. I mean, just intellectually speaking, we all know that wars that go on and on have a tendency to escalate. And there was an example of how this could happen over the past week. Lithuania is now essentially stopping the flow of goods from the Russian mainland to another part of Russia called Kaliningrad, which is it's called an oblast. It's a little area, but it's outside the Russian mainland. It's basically between Poland and Lithuania. And so goods go by rail from the Russian mainland to Kaliningrad, and they've been stopping these goods because they say they're under EU sanction. The problem is, listen, when you think about a sanction, a sanction is me not buying goods from you because I don't like what you're doing. That's fair game. Everyone has a choice over who they want to buy from. But this is not that. This is uh, Lithuania deciding to stop goods going from Russia to Russia. And so the Russians say this is a blockade, I think with some justification. And blockades are understood to be an act of war. So you've got Lithuania basically engaging in this act of escalation against Russia. We always thought it would be Poland. But it's right, exactly. Yeah. And remember, Lithuania is, is a member of NATO, so they have an Article 5 guarantee. Now, think about the upside versus downside of this action. In terms of from the Western point of view, the upside is this has absolutely no impact on the outcome of the war. This is not going to help anyone in Ukraine to blockade Kaliningrad and prevent coal and building materials and steel from reaching Kaliningrad. That's not going to have any impact on the war. So there's zero upside to this from a military standpoint. But the downside is that you now have Lithuania and Russia getting into it. And if they get into a war, then we are instantly pulled in under Article 5 or in the middle of War Three. So this is the kind of dangerous escalatory act that has no upside, only downside for us. And my view on it is that we have to tell, we have to instruct, frankly, our treaty allies not to engage in these types of dangerous acts, because there's a huge externality. We could be pulled in. This is very dangerous. And I just wonder if the administration is on top of this. Did they give the green light to the Lithuanians to do this, or were they caught by surprise? 
And what is the reaction to acts like this? Uh, you know, what I worry is that we're conducting foreign policy by virtue signaling, where we just say, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? And, you know, if, if the Russians are the bad guys, the Lithuanians are the good guys, so therefore this is okay. It's like playing cops and robbers on a global stage. I think we need to be asking the question, is this smart or is it dumb? Is this prudential or is it reckless? Is this in our interests or is it not in our interests? And, um, you know, I really got to wonder about who's mining the store on this. Day 120. Um, and it feels like this is just doesn't have an end in sight. Is there an end in sight here? What's the end? I mean, the, I the, mean, the end what do the is two parties want? Yeah. What do the two parties want at this point? I mean, the people in Russia are suffering during this. The people in the Ukraine are being murdered uh, in Ukraine are being murdered. I mean, how does it end? The At problem point. is that Biden um, engaged the United States in a proxy war without our real explicit discussion, number one. And then number two is then we pulled and we pressured Europe to really draw a hard line, but then now are kind of working around it so that the countries that suffer the most are Europe. Now, I think you're starting to see the tea leaves, though. Last week, there was a group of European leaders, I think it was Macron, Draghi, uh, and I can't remember if it was the German chancellor or not, and one other person who went um, to Ukraine. And if I had to bet, I think the message was kind of like, all right, listen, like we need to find an organized detente here um, because there is, you know, according to Europe, uh, a Lehman-like situation in terms of economic contagion that could manifest over the next months. So I think that the end game is probably some organized, negotiated detente and ceasefire. Um, I don't think anybody will be happy with it. But I think by and large, Russia is and has won, you know, meaning they've won economically. They're selling oil like it's not, you know, like it's going out of style. It's just not selling it to Europe and to America. Um you know, they're selling it to China. They're selling it to Africa. They're selling India it to India. India is fine with it. They'll, they'll take some Well, also, Chamath, they've won. They're winning on the battlefield. There was an article and in the Washington the Post. Battlefield. There was an article in the Washington Post in the last week or so. And the Washington Post is basically the house organ of the Washington establishment and the, the blob, basically saying that hopes are dimming for Ukraine on the battlefield. The Russians have now won 20 to 25% of the country. They've won that eastern, that Donbass region. They've done it with the help of Russian separatists in Ukraine. And there were, it, the, the amazing thing in this article was that they were saying that the Ukrainians were days away from running out of ammunition, despite the $40 billion that we just appropriated to them. Wow, Where did that money go? And, the, and conversely, they're saying Russia is having just unbelievable casualties, and they're running out of weapons. And they are obviously out of Kiev now, uh, and they're in the Donbass mostly. So no, it, I don't think the Russians like are running out of anything. The Russians, the, 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 so listen, I, I said on this pod. Well, they said they're out of tanks, right? They're, 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 and then the troops. Well, are they've, they've adjusted their strategy, and they've they're 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 learning. They're adapting to this new kind of warfare, this asymmetric warfare, where you can take out a tank with a drone. You know. Yeah. But but look, you know, remember on this pod, three weeks into the war, everybody who was in favor of this proxy war was saying how great it was, and they were saying it was going to lead to a new birth of freedom in the West, that it was strengthening our alliances. You had Francis Fukuyama predicting that we were going to win the war, and it would lead to this rebirth of freedom in the West. We should have known at that moment, wrong. everything that Fukuyama basically predicts, the opposite He's always comes wrong. He's always, He's always wrong. wrong. It's He's like always negative wrong. one correlation. Yeah. 
And remember, I said three weeks in that we were potentially, I think Putin made the mistake in the first three weeks of thinking this would be a cakewalk, but that we were making the mistake of thinking the next phase would be a cakewalk. And sure enough, here we are. Russia has now won the eastern part By of the, the way, country. Just to, just to build on what you said, you know, we engage in economic sanctions. And I was the first one to say, hey, this could really work and this could be a roadmap for how to do it. And it turned out this is the roadmap for how not to do it. You can't on the front door say, here are these sanctions, and then walk around the back door and basically open the door for them. These these sanctions were so porous as to be like Swiss cheese. We focused on virtue signaling acts like confiscating a plane or a boat or a house, but we didn't focus on the structural things we needed to actually um, you know, make the mandate that we believe to be just to come to life. And so Russia's completely worked around it. Their economy effectively, you know, is thriving. So what have we gained? How is it thriving? I mean, I don't know that thriving is how they would describe their economy right now. Yeah. I, I mentioned Jason, this. Jason, they're I printing records. The rubles are five-year high, Jason. They're selling gas. They're selling phosphate. They're actually making a market, and the prices have doubled and tripled in those commodities because the flow has been restricted. So it because was the exact opposite of what we tried to do. And by the way, I'll point, I'll, I'll point out something that I pointed out in February, which was the biggest concern for me at the time. When we stopped allowing trading in the securities of Russian companies, we yanked away $400 billion of market cap that was held primarily by pension funds and retirement funds in the US and Europe and gave that value to Russia for free. We basically said, here you go, here are all these securities, we're no longer allowed to trade in them, so guess what? You guys can trade in them. You can and have they got, them. They got all of their gas and energy and nickel and mining At companies zero. for free. I think it's for such zero. a, it's such they a good zero point. zero dollars for it's, these companies. Uh, we gave them, we ripped the stock out of retirement funds and we gave it to the Russians and said, here you go, Putin, take all of these securities for free, enjoy. Oh, and by the way, because of our idiotic sanctions and the way we're employing them, the commodity prices are going to double and triple and all these companies are going to have record profits this year. <laughs> Happy fucking birthday. The ruble's up 5X. <laughs> it's not up 5X, but yeah. Okay. It's a great point because if Putin had retaliated against the West by nationalizing 400 billion of Western assets in Russia, everyone would have been up in arms. But totally. he didn't even have to do that because we just gave him <laughs> we gave the it 400 him. billion. Totally. I mean, how did this policy make sense? It's this policy of conducting- You cannot again, trade for in Russian securities. I'm, I'm friggin' BlackRock. I own a billion dollars of Russian securities. The US government just took it out of my portfolio that my clients own stakes in and gave it to the Russians for free. They're gone, poof. Crazy. I think, listen, I think we've got like a, a, a two level problem on this Ukraine war. One is that our policy hasn't made sense. We should have been using diplomacy last year to avoid it. This, we had all these false hopes around strengthening the West and the Western alliance by allowing this war to happen. We then, instead of trying to shut it down through a negotiated settlement, we tried to use it as a proxy war to weaken Putin. Instead, it's done the opposite. So there's a whole series of policy failures here. But there's another deeper level to the failure, which is the personnel who are implementing these policies, the Washington establishment, the blob, who've been of both parties, the, the sort of uni party, who've been implementing these policies. There has been no dissent within the Washington establishment. The only guy who really spoke up in a decisive way was John Mearsheimer, the professor 
of International Relations from the University of Chicago, and he was treated as a pariah by the Blob and the Washington establishment. Everything he predicted has come true. Yeah, he predicted he this the, years ago. Years ago. He yeah, predicted he, the U.S. was leading Ukraine down the primrose path, and the result was that Ukraine was going to get wrecked. And so it has. Can I just read the first paragraph of this Bloomberg article that I just posted? Russia's current account surplus more than tripled in the first four months of the year to $95.8 The central bank said, as prices I mean, surged for oil and gas imports and imports plunged under the weight of sanctions. Well, you know, if you're Putin and you're looking at this, you're like, wow, maybe I should be under sanctions more often. Totally. You know, what country should I invade next? All because this, this all is- sanctions, All that sanctions were was a restriction on the free market. And when you restricted the free market, you basically created a spike in price, but the market, his market could still operate with a narrower set of trading partners. He is selling energy to certain trading partners. He's selling phosphates. He's making money. They are exporting product and they're making more because certain people can't buy and they've got to go drive the price up elsewhere. So not not only did our sanctions package not work and not only is the treasury, treasurer, tre- treasury sorry, flailing around now trying to find even more back doors, we actually opened a very dangerous precedent, which is now we allowed oil to settle in currencies that are not just the United States dollar. And now Russia and China are trading and settling in CNY. That's not good for us. This is not how you yeah. preserve the well, integrity I mean, the of the EU, reserve currency of America. I, I don't understand the EU of cutting all of their energy and then becoming dependent on Russia, then creating a ban and sanctions but then they made a carve out that oil delivered by pipeline. Janet Yellen has been negotiating this carve out. We have been enabling Russia to sell. We know oh, the EU passed this legislation. No. Jason, to look, look in the Wall Street Journal today. The article is I'm there. I'm reading I'll, I'll the CNBC right now about it. Like the EU passed this landmark sanctions package in May, but they also allowed the stuff that's coming by pipeline for some reason to be a carve out. If the EU wants to contain Putin from invading countries on their doorstep, they got to actually become energy independent. That's the, the beginning and it end of this. It is not popular. And this is the problem with populism. What's not the, popular? It's not popular to continue to have, to, to, to have energy independence. Nuclear was not popular. And so the politicians, the legislators responded in a short-sighted way to the popular opinion of the day. And this is the challenge. Absolutely. With, yes. Yeah. Huge mistake on German's part. They closed three nuclear reactors. The popular yeah. sentiment in Europe got highly affected by these environmental groups. Exactly. Yes. That's my point. But in the U.S., I think the people of the country want us to be energy independent. Correct, and, sure. and it's elite opinion that bought into these foolish ideas that basically we should cancel energy independence. We should cancel the Keystone Pipeline. Job we should cancel one. new drilling. America should be a net energy exporter. 100%. Job number one is to be energy independent. And job number two is to move to But look renewables. at Biden now. I'm at, there's another piece to this, You got to right? do this so in sequence. Yeah. He, so when he came in, he said that he was going to make the Saudis a pariah on the world stage. Remember yeah. this? Now he's going hat in hand to them to try and get them to produce more Ridiculous. oil and lower the price. So Ridiculous. what was the point of this foreign policy? It, it was contradictory. It's, it's, he cancels our energy independence. Yeah. He basically insults the, Saud- the Saudis on which we're even more dependent for oil. And then- he basically refuses to engage in diplomacy on Ukraine. These policies are contradictory. Even if your goal was to basically isolate the Russians, you would then want to improve our relationship 100%. with Saudi, and you'd yeah. want to produce more of our own oil. 100%. Yeah, you, 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 he overplayed his hand for sure. I mean, you, ha- you can't not have uh, heat in the winter in Germany, and the Germans 
are complete. That's coming, idiot. by the way. That's coming. You think things are bad right now? Wait until winter. Oh, it's gonna and be then and that's only going to increase Putin's leverage. And that's when you're going to see a real fracture in the Western alliance. This idea that Ukraine strengthened the Western alliance, I think you will start to see the fractures come this way. winter. I mean, Germany's got to put those the, the, nukes the, the back slow, online. The slow march of nationalism will continue, and this will be another catalyzing event. For Turn it. your nukes back on, Germany. And, 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 and I also think that, you know, in thinking about the Western alliance, I think that, you know, countries like Germany and, and France are really going to question U.S. leadership when they have basically a huge economic recession and they're wondering how they're going to heat their homes in the winter. But I think in the U.S. it's time to reevaluate some of the alliances that we've gotten ourselves in. Again, with this Lithuania situation, do you really think that Lithuania would be basically poking that big Russian bear if they didn't have the U.S. standing behind them as a bodyguard? No way. They would be much more circumspect and prudential. And the, re- and the fact of the matter is that these Eastern European countries, the Baltic countries and Poland, they have enmities, they have friction with Russia going back hundreds of years. And these guys basically, they have very provocative attitudes towards Russia and our alliance with them can draw us in. So we have to really keep a close lid on that. We do not want them making moves on their own uh, because we could get drawn into a, a world war here. Yeah. And by the way, to your point, Sachs, also, you know, there continues to be escalating issues with debt and concerns about debt repayment across the EU. And while Germany is, you know, looking to the US for support and worried about energy prices, they're going to end up having to foot the bill to support a bunch of these EU um, uh, member nations that are facing debt crises and will continue to face significant debt crises over the years ahead. I mean, Greece made a payment recently, but Greece's uh, debt to GDP is still over 200%. Italy's at 155%. Portugal's at 134%. I mean, the numbers are uh, pretty I mean, significant. It, and as rates you climb- You saw it today. Uh, you know, it was- Yeah, uh, the, 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 the spread on it, Italian debt has spiked over the last couple of weeks. Spiked. Bridgewater and, basically is big as short. Germany, short. Germany's got another freaking crisis to fight now. Yeah. And I think you're right. The The Western alliance is more than just uh, military at this point. There's this, you know, do I really want to be the economic savior over and over again of my smaller member states? And guess who's going to benefit in all of this? China. <laughs> like, they're going to look at this fracturing and they're going to be like, great. By the way, just speaking of, speaking of China for a second, you know, we talk and we, we bloviate about our desire for energy independence. And, you know, we exclude Tesla from, you know, any sort of major meaningful legislation. We trumpet, you know, these companies that are just completely woefully behind uh, in building energy independence. Um, We think about like a gas tax holiday, but as like kind of like a, you know, something that still needs an act of Congress to pass, even though Congress has said they have absolutely no intention of passing it. Meanwhile, we keep losing our footing to China just today CATL, which is one of the largest battery manufacturers, announced a pretty meaningful improvement in their, you know, 3.0 battery design. These guys are now building batteries that can go a thousand kilometers um, in both of the major, you know, um, uh, compositions that really matter, NMC and LFP. And, and I just look at these things and I'm like, wow, we cannot actually get capacity funded to build domestic battery capability. Because we're too busy kind of basically virtue signaling on things that don't matter. Um, and in return, nothing happens. China continues to lap us. We, uh, it's really, it's a really 
bad state of affairs. We are uh, we are in a very odd period in terms of government effectiveness. If, if you think about China's foreign policy, how have they lost out by not being part of all of these conflicts? How have they, they lost out? They, they exactly. have they're buying prices of oil that were nine months ago to 18 months ago. And so there not only has Russia's output price been capped, but that's okay. China's input cost has been capped. And so they don't suffer the same rate of inflation that the rest of us do. So to your point, David, you know, our quote unquote, you know, exclusionary sanctions were ineffective, they were porous. And we allowed our largest competitive frenemy, if you will, to basically be able to, you know, drive their entire economy at 30 to 40% of the uh, a discount to what we have to pay to do the same. <laughs> right. When, when, when China goes abroad, they go abroad in search of economic resources and economic development. That's the point of Belt and Road. They don't insert themselves in these middle of these conflicts that they don't understand. They were never involved in the Middle East. They were never involved in like policing, you know, all these different countries. That has cost us a fortune. And now the bill is finally coming due in the form of this inflation. We are going to have Can some I? form or another of austerity in this country. And it's partly because of this highly militarized foreign policy in which we have sent ourselves abroad to be the world's policemen. We can no longer afford to do that. Can I make a generalization, Sachs? You react and tell me if this is true or not. If you have a country that has existed in some way, shape, or form, you know, the, the borders could be blurry, but roughly, for hundreds and hundreds of years, and in some cases, thousands of years, where internally, the population of that country views themselves, you know, in a great way. They, they, they don't feel like their country is a meaningless, nothing country. Any attempt to economically humiliate such a country tends to have failed in the past and will continue to fail. And there tends to be other countries who view it as one of these things where, well, if them, then why not us? And then they sort of, you know, in a, in a backhanded way, support everybody. So we end up in this odd situation where we are picking fights we cannot win. Totally. And, and the consequences for us are economically really damaging. Right, and absolutely. then the consequences for everybody else to stay on the sidelines is like economic prosperity. That doesn't make any sense. Right. Uh, unless well, to, you're to, in to Europe you, and you're this. afraid that Russia is going to roll over more countries and that you have this existential risk that this dictator is going well, to attack more countries. So okay, if you're well, living well, in Eastern Europe, you might have a different view of it. Yeah. So, you might very much accept and want some help from you know, NATO and other folks who... But you're not getting that help. That's the problem with that. That's the sad part about well, all I mean, of this. I mean, if it's poorly executed, it's not working at this point in time. Yeah, I mean, it's a well, valid well, criticism. Jake, Al, if, yeah. if you look at the EU, okay, as an entity, they have almost the same GDP and output as the US. And if you compare them to Russia, their economy, their, their GDP is 10 times greater than Russia. They are rich. They can afford to allocate a few percent of their GDP, of their government budget to defense. They should be able to defend themselves. They really should. And so this idea that we have to go over to Europe and bankrupt ourselves to defend rich Europeans, they should be picking up 100% of the cost of that, 100%. I don't know why we're paying for rich Europeans when our country is massively in debt. Why aren't we passing the bill to them for that? Yeah, yeah, we're absolutely, um, yeah, do we have to spend that much money to to do that? No. And then obviously the wars in the Middle East were 
Let me, just, let me pick up disastrous. on this Wolves policeman idea. What kind of yeah. policing works the best? Community policing. When the policemen are from the neighborhood and they know all the players, they understand the subtlety of the, yeah, boots of, on the, of the area. Exactly. The U.S. has made itself the world's policeman. We parachute into areas that we don't understand. We did in the Middle East. It was very ineffective. What we should do is let the regions deal with the problems themselves first. And we should be the policemen of last resort, not first resort. Let the Europeans take the lead. They should be paying for their own defense. You know, we could still have NATO, but they should be paying for it. They should be the first responders. And if they can't handle it, then we can back them up. But this idea that we need to be on the bleeding edge of all these conflicts, bankrupting ourselves, it's a foolish idea. Energy independence is a solution to all of this. We wouldn't have to deal with these despots if we didn't, if we had energy independence. So we're getting we're getting that. circles run around us by China, Jason, on the innovations front. Circles run around us by China on the innovation front. Example? I just told you the CATL battery that they just announced today. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, battery technologies, we, we have a lot going on there as well. I mean, it seems like the battery technology issue has been solved for EVs for some time now. I mean, if an EV can go 200 miles, and we can build them at scale, which seems like we're on the precipice of, um, we're going to be good, you don't need more than 200 miles on average, it's just a luxury every mile after that, given how fast superchargers are working. So just practically speaking, 95% of Americans will do just fine with a electric car that does 200 mile range. And the other 5% can do a hybrid or can still burn oil. We just need to get more. We have to be more serious about the miles per gallon. Right now, we are just absolutely abhorrent in our use of fuel in this country. It's just crazy that we have low 20 miles per gallon uh, as our average when other countries are 30, 40, 50, you know, we're 30 and 40. Because uh, we 40s. like our, you know, seven seat suburbs. Which is ridiculous because 99 out of 100 missions in that suburban are done with one or two people in it. The fact that our Ubers, you know, and our Lyfts or whatever are coming with giant suburbans with one person in it is just I have a I have a Fiat E500 here, like a little mini. Oh, little, it's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, yeah. It's I mean, this incredible. is why, I mean, this is the path. If we can just, if you just think about it, if, if we were to double our miles per gallon, there are cars right now that are doing 50, 55 miles per gallon. We really have to be more punitive uh, in terms of taxation give me the, on the Give me SUVs. the forecast, J.K.L., what's going to happen with Biden? Oh, okay. So I give, guess- give me, your, give me your scorecard. Give me your grade. How's he doing? For Biden? Oh, it's, a, it's disastrous. I mean, it, it, I think the only thing more disastrous than Biden would be having Trump do a second, third, and fourth term. 100%. So, but, yeah. so play it out. Play it out. Well, I don't think he's going to run again. I think they're going to have to- You don't think Biden's going to run again? I think they're, I think between then and now, if the economy keeps going the way it's going, he would be a lame duck and impossible. And I think he might say, you know what, I'm going to retire to spend time with my kids and my golden years. And they might convince him that him running again is a really bad idea. And Kamala Harris is a disaster as well. She hasn't proven anything in the first who, two years. Who, yeah, who would the Dems put up? J.K.L., as a Democrat, who would you want to have put up? I think it's going to be DeSantis versus Newsom in 24. I, yeah, I, um, but, but sorry, explain that. Okay, so, well, which part of it, Newsom or DeSantis? Or you said, how, does, how does Newsom get the nod? Okay, here, so Newsom has a very weak challenger in, in California. It's a plus but 30 can, Dem state. Can, he, hold can, on, he, so can he win? Hold on, so he's going to yeah. handily win re-election in California. He's already, not, he's not even campaigning for re-election in California. He's, he's already campaigning to be president. The thing that he did that was politically smart, and I say this not as a fan of Newsom, but just as someone who's analyzing the politics of it, is that he went on true social. 
and he ba- to basically counter your know, Republican lies. And so he's positioning himself as a fighter for progressive values. And the reason why that's going to be flattering to the Democratic base is that when the Democrats lose big in November, they're going to have there's going to be a reckoning. And they're going to have to understand why they lost. And the fact of the matter is that ideologues never blame themselves or their agenda. They are going to say that it was not communicated well and that we needed a basically a better communicator who was a fighter. And so they will basically pin the blame even more on Biden. And so Newsom is positioning himself as that sort of democratic progressive fighter. If you go back, remember when Michael Avenatti, like they were, you know, progressive were talking about him as a presidential candidate for a brief minute, they swooned over him. Why? Did he go to jail? Yes, he's in jail right yeah, now. Yeah, no, he's a total grifter <laughs> no, scumbag. Look, a total grifter scumbag, but you got to remember, Wait, CNN Jake had him Al, on there every Jake, day because Jake Al the, he was a fighter. Name, Jake Al says his name in the funniest way possible. I remember in a poker game when like Helmuth said he had known him or something. Jake Al, what's this guy's name? Say his name. Michael Avenatti. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce it. I never Back met the guy. Bada bing, bada boom. I'm Michael Avenatti. Right? Uh, he's a disaster. <laughs> uh, it's an interesting concept. Yeah. Sachs, can you giving the Dems will give Newsom the nod? Can he actually win in some of these um, these uh, middle states? Well, you, you got to remember, and this is true for both parties, that the general electorate does not pick the candidates. The parties pick the candidates, and right. the base of the party picks and they the want candidates. To have a winner. They want someone that can win Pennsylvania. They want someone that can win Florida. They yeah, want someone... but yes and no. So if I you remember when when, yeah. when Bill Clinton pulled the Democratic Party back to the center in 1992, and you had the whole Democratic Leadership Council, and they really remade the Democratic Party at that time as a more centrist party, they had just come off three disastrous presidential elections. So Reagan in 80 and 84, and then Herbert Walker Bush in uh, in 88. So, you know, it took three big losses for them to rethink. I don't think progressives are going to rethink their agenda, you know, based on one midterm loss, even though I think it's going to be gargantuan uh, later this year. So I think they need more losses to really reevaluate their agenda. I mean, look, the activists in the party are deeply invested in their agenda. They're just not going to give it up. They're going to blame it on a communication problem. They're going to say, let's find a new messenger. And Newsom will seem like a younger, fresh face. So I think that's how it could happen. And if you look at the Democratic bench, well, who else he can they also got? say, can he also, yeah, who else they got is the issue. Who else they Buttigieg? got? You I mean, it's Buttigieg. Elizabeth Warren? Well, Buttigieg and AOC, if they want to go full, like crazy left, would be, and then if they want to go more moderate, Gavin. That doesn't win an election. You got to find someone that can win the election. I I I agree, I agree, but it's going to be about turnout. Newsom was the governor of a big state, which is, as of now. And the $100 billion surplus looks good for him. So, yeah, I mean, Gavin. It's a scenario. It's a scenario. But uh, look, I think the the big question is, will Republicans field Trump? After January sixth, and I, I, I think the answer is no. And um, it's too I shameful, think, right, to to do that. I, I think that look. I think Trump's problem is he won't stop talking about the last election. And I think elections are always about the future. And the Republicans ultimately going to nominate a candidate who represents the future. And no I think, Republicans want him as going out there trying to steal an election again. No look, Republicans if you look, want if you look at, that. If you look at straw polls, hands. okay. If you look at straw polling. Um, DeSantis now is beating Trump in straw polls in the Republican Party. Jonathan Chait, who is a pretty smart liberal, definitely not a Republican, but he's a sometimes has very smart observations. Remember the whole zero COVID thing. Anyway, he has an article just today talking about how DeSantis has now eclipsed Trump within the Republican base. And if you look at the numbers at within, if you if you poll Fox News viewers, 
and likely Republican primary voters. DeSantis is up a couple of points in the straw polls, but among Fox News viewers, he's up like 10 to 14 points. So in other words, the Republican base, the activists who are the influencers, they already have moved from Trump to DeSantis. No, they love him. Yeah, yeah. So also, I think the I mean, field, the, if the, DeSantis the, the, runs, he's going to run, he's going to win a, a landslide. This is why I say it's DeSantis versus uh, Newsom, I think. But look, it could be DeSantis versus Biden. It could even be Trump versus Newsom. I think the configurations that win for the Republicans, I think if Biden's on the ticket, I think any Republican wins. I think if it's DeSantis versus Newsom, I think DeSantis wins. I think, however, and this is sort of the nightmare scenario, I think if it's something like a Newsom versus Trump, I think Republicans could lose that just because, oh, you know, the people, for sure they would. people, people think about the future. They, they, they want, they don't want to be reminded of the past. And um, so I think no, there's risks there. No more well, also the past is insane and deranged. You can't, you can't have two 80, 80 year olds running for president. No that more would be great. Yeah. yeah. I think All right. no, nothing Hard against octogenarians. 75 years old would be good for me. All right. This has been a, this has been a very long episode. Well, yeah, well, well, considering how much uh, sax is going to spike, uh, we'll get it back down to 45 minutes. All right, everybody, it's an amazing episode. I love you We're guys. Back. It's really We're nice to be back. We're not going anywhere. Everybody We're relax. Back. We're, We're back. back. I'm Jake not going back. anywhere. You're going to need a wrecking ball to take me out of here. You're going to descend in the next show guard. We never wanted to get rid of you, Jake Al. Jake we don't want to get rid of you, but now all we need is three out of four votes, so. <laughs> all right, good luck. Vote me off. We, ne we never wanted to get rid of you, Jake Al, but we knew we had to do certain things to get you to act right. Oh my gosh. Oh boy, here it comes. Jake Al, <laughs> Jake Al brought, a, brought a knife to a gunfight. He Sorry? came to negotiate. Listen, you guys don't want any West intros. You're too left, cheap to give me two he, points. That's Jake fine. Al, Jake Al came to negotiate the Treaty of Westphalia and he left with half a Snickers bar. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. You guys don't get no more intros for you. That's no more all-in summit, no more intros. We're going to hold back our payment. By the way, I'm about to get on a call with our lawyers. We're going to get the account set up, get all the money transferred from your mm, summit. Yum, yum. Good luck with that. Yum, yum. Yum, yum. Good luck with that money. That's long gone. <laughs> I put that on the Warriors. I tripled it. We're good. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time on the All. Love you, boys. Bye bye. bye, bye. Love you, besties. Bye bye. bye, -bye. We'll let your winners ride. Rain Man David Sachs. We open source it to the fans, and they've just gone crazy with it. Love you, Ice Queen of Be. Be. What? <laughs> That's gonna be a, we need to get merch. I'm doing all in.